you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. So, the tale of Macduffo's pig. I assume we're still in Ireland. We are still in Ireland for this one. I've got a couple of Irish ones, but we will switch it up. We'll do some Old English stuff and some Middle English stuff. But I thought of this one because it's short, sweet, and it really connects with the toyne. And I think I'm going to say it correctly. I know that Professor Hughes got on me for my pronunciation about this, but I'm, again, I'm not an Irish scholar. I think it's toynbukuling, and you don't say the last E. So I think it's the toynbukuling, but it's just generally referred to as the toyne. It looks like the tain, T-A-I-N, mm-hmm. is how it's spelled, but it's the toyne. And in the more modern English, it's the cattle raid of Cooley. And are you are you familiar with the cattle raid of Cooley? I've heard of it. I don't think I've ever read it. Oh, so you don't know this one. Okay, we'll definitely have to do this one because it's... The Toyne is one of the big chunks of Irish lore. Everybody knows who Cuchulain is. So that one, when we cover that one, there'll be a lot to jump into there. But the one that we're doing today is sort of a... It could either be considered a precursor or a satire of the Toyne. And it's very interesting as to why. Yeah, it connects to the Toyne. And some scholars believe it predates the Toyne because it includes all the major figures. So you have mm-hmm. Queen Maeve and you have, I think Fergus is mentioned. You've got Alil. You've got uh, Conquivere. Also entertained by the fact that you have Dr. Hughes correcting your pronunciation on things. On Old Irish, of all things. I was like, when? But he knows every language that's ever existed. I just, he's a grand wizard. And I've, and that was like a year (laughs) ago and I've never forgotten this because I was so mortified because I was like, I was like, I know how to pronounce this. Like, no, no, I don't. But it's it's the Toyn Bakuling, not the Toyn Bakulinga. You don't say the last E. So it's just the Toyn. You know, once I asked Dr. Hughes how many languages he speaks, and he's like, that doesn't make sense as a question, because what's the difference between a language and a dialect? Because, <laughs> like, for, for him, they're just all this one mass, and, like, he's does... Uh. He does Old Norse, Modern Norse, I know he knows Icelandic, he knows a couple, like, African dialects. I know he's he knows Basque. Basque? Wow. And, of course, he's got French, English, Old English... Italian, German. I mean, the man is a linguist monster. Does he still have the um, the chalkboard in his office that just has a bunch of scribbles of like lingual cognates and things on the board? Yeah, I don't think he's erased that in years. I that's. I mean, it's got to be ten years old. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Professor Hughes, wonderful man, fantastic professor. His office is. St- Stacked with books from floor to ceiling. His house is stacked with books from floor to ceiling. That's also true. It's wild. And he's got like three letters from Cambridge sitting on his desk. And he's like, ah, those came in last week. I'll open them later. And I'm like, what? Okay. Uh, Apparently the University of Iceland calls him our Sean. That's amazing. Because they love him so much. That's why I know he knows Basque, because there's a story that, like, he found a manuscript that was partially in Icelandic, and no one was sure what it was, and he looks at it, and he's like, oh, that's an Icelandic Basque dictionary. An Icelandic Basque dictionary? First off, why does he know that? And second off, why does that exist? I mean, they're both seafaring cultures. That's true. That's amazing. Anyway, he's a grand wizard. 
That is my official stance. <laughs> I want to know how many, like, ogres he's killed. He was a shepherd in Iceland. I'm sure he fought a troll. He's definitely fought some trolls. Because every single shepherd in Iceland, in all the sagas, ends up fighting an Eden of some sort. Mm-hmm. So he's just done it. Point blank. Anyway, that rambling aside, and my <laughs> terrible pronunciation... <laughs> That I'm slowly improving. So the tale of Macdethos Pig includes all the major characters from the Toyn, except for Kukulin himself. And that's because Kukulin is the Hound of Kulin. That's what his name means. And he had another name originally, but he took on this name because a dog was killed and he, or he killed the dog. I don't quite remember, but it's in his birth tale. And he takes the place of the dog as like the farmer's servant. Kinky. Yeah. So that's how he gets that name. And so instead of having Kakulin in the story, we have an actual dog. So it could predate it, it could partially predate it, and then it turns into a satire later. So this this form is probably a satire due to what occurs towards the end. And we'll get into why. Again, the Irish love putting politics in their stories. I mean, every legend does, Mm -hmm. but the Irish do in particular. So in any case, it is a true treasure of Irish literature. And I think it's perfect to start right before the Toyn, before we cover the Toyn, just because it plays off of it. And once we get into the Toyn, you'll see the comparison and the differences. All right. So there is a king called Macdetho. And he's like the Grand King of Ireland, and he has a dog called Alvi. It's a wonderful Irish spelling. It's A-I-L-B-E. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yes, so Alvi. And Alvi apparently... Hold on, I thought you had to spell it B-H for it to do the B sound, like Siobhan. It depends on what letters come before and after, and if it's an old Irish name, it's different than a modern Irish name. I don't know, but I double-checked this one as well. I really feel like Irish just needs to either revive or create its own alphabet, because it clearly doesn't fit with the Latin alphabet very well. Mm Mm-mm. It doesn't. Have you ever seen Irish paleography? I have not. Oh, man. I'll have to send you some of this beautiful old Irish paleography. The professor who did my Irish Sagas class also did Irish surnames, which was fantastic. And he also did an Irish paleography class. And you look at some of the paleography and you're staring at it. And for those of you who don't know what paleography is, paleography is sort of the art slash science of reading through and understanding old manuscripts because there's a lot of different shorthands, there's a lot of different endings. You have Latin abbreviations that you might find in the middle of a Middle English text because it's easier to use the word quote than to write out the word what or whatever. So that's what paleography is. And so it can look very spooky. It can look very strange. I've adopted some of it for my own shorthands, the way they use uh, the thorn for the and that. Yes, that one's fantastic. I'll use that occasionally. I really like using sort of the N that drops down as an NG yeah. ending. I really like they're like an ING ending. I use some of the Voynich manuscripts letters as full words. So I use one of those loopy ones as a word for that. That was one of my favorites. 
But yeah, so paleography looks really fun. It's very weird if you if you're not familiar with it, but once you learn the shorthand, it's a lot of fun to go through and read. But some of the old Irish paleography in particular is really wacky looking. So I'll I'll send that to you. You'll you'll definitely get a kick out of that because they yeah. definitely had some of their own letters that they threw in there. I also want to see what your notes look like with Voynich manuscript characters in them. <laughs> it's only one or two. It's not it's not a whole lot of them. But I, I played around with, you know, creating alphabets as one does when one is deeply into fantasy literature as a teenager. So I kept I kept a couple of those letters and threw them in my notes. The worst part is that when I started doing Middle English, my spelling, my spelling's already crap, but it became so much worse once I started doing Middle English because they don't know how to spell anything. Yeah, there's no standardization. There's no. So I still spell the word better. B-E-T-T-E-R-E. Why? <laughs> I don't know. So you are so likely to get a text from me that is half in modern English, and it might have an old English word in there. It might have some middle English. I don't know. I always have difficulty writing in Middle English because I feel like it's just modern English spelled funny. Yeah, it is. And then you get weird old English words thrown yeah. in that just stay and we don't have them anymore. Like, one of my favorites is the word eek, E-E-K, yeah. which means also. So I, re I really like that one. Zephyrus egg with his sweet breatha. His sweet breatha. Oh, yes. Chaucer. So, anyway, I don't know how we got there. So, yeah, Alvi is the dog's name. And it's spelled weird. That's how we got there. So, he's got this dog named Alvi. And... There are two major sides in Ireland, two major big tribes. I was really expecting you to say there were two sides of the dog. <laughs> no, unfortunately. But there's two different major tribes in Ireland. And again, this comes in with the Toyn, because these sides are the same sides that are in the Toyn. And on the one side, you have Aleel and Maeve. And on the other side, you have Concavir and the Uliad or the Ulstermen. Both of these groups, both of the leaders of these groups, come to Macdetho and they say, we want your dog, Alvi, because he's a great dog, he's the king's dog, he protects all of Ireland, so we want this dog. Are they offering to pay? Or like, do they yes, just like- Yes, they are. Okay. They are. So it, it would be a trade and sort of, the, of course, the custom, the old custom is you come, you welcome your visitors, you have this big feast. We set up this story sort of in an otherworldly place because the king's hostel, and it's referred to as a hostel, but this is not referring to hostels as we know it, where questionable things are going on in the bathrooms. It's more of a hunting lodge or a palace or something. It's a place where you host. It's a place where you host, yes. So the king invites them all to his hostel and invites them in. And the interesting thing about this hostel is that there are seven entrances, there are seven hearths, and there are seven cauldrons at each one of the hearths. And each cauldron contains beef and pork and the meat. And the trick about these pots is that as you thrust your fork into it and take out a piece, whatever you bring up is what you eat. So if you bring up a lot, that's what you get. If you don't bring up anything, then you don't get any food. This sounds very Arthurian, actually. Is it? I I'm just imagining, like, some gray-eyed damsel going like, this is the custom of our castle. 
You can't question it, Knight. Yeah, pretty much. So that's, you know, the custom of the hostel, essentially. And I think it has to do with each man's worth. Like, if you've proven yourself, you're going to get a bigger piece of meat because you've earned it, essentially, is how I've interpreted it. But it's not very clear. Have this big chunk of cow. You've earned Uh it. You've earned it. I mean, maybe that's just me as an athlete wanting to, like, eat more food after I work out. (laughs) Because I would be entirely happy with having a magic cauldron that's like, "Do do you deserve all the calories you burned off? Because here you go. Here's a giant chunk of pork. I would be very pleased with that. I mean, nothing's stopping you from having a pot full of giant <laughs> chunks of pork. That's true. That's true. You know, to be fair, I, you know, brisket in Texas is so good. I've missed Southern food. Southern food is amazing. Amazing. So just to give you guys some geography, Alil and Maeve are from Connacht, which is in the west of Ireland where Galway is, and Conquivere and the Uliad or the Ulstermen are from Northern Ireland where Northern Ireland is. So they go into his home and you've got these hearths and the magic pots. They go in and the king listens to their requests before they eat because that is what you do. Both sides say, we want the dog. Alil and Maeve say, we will give you 160 milk cows, a chariot, two of the best horses that we have in Connacht, and all of that again at the end of the year. So that's what the Connacht men are going to give Macdetho for the dog. So Alil and Maeve, king and queen, or tribe leaders, etc. Wait, which one? Alil is a king? Uh, uh, well, see, here's the thing, and I was trying to figure this out, is Macdetho is the king of Ireland, but Ireland is split up into its separate tribes. So... Mm. The Connacht are led by Alil and Maeve. So they're, I suppose, what you'd call Jarls or Earls or lesser lords. No, you can have sub-kings. That's fine. Or a sub-king. You know, that's fine. I guess England did that, you know. Mostly I was just surprised because I had assumed Alil was a feminine name. No, Alil is the king and Maeve is the queen. So and quick, I know I know Maeve. Yeah, Maeve has her own supernatural stuff going on in the Toyn and all of that. So she's a very well-known woman, but Alil is her husband. Yeah, so we'll give you the cows, we'll give you the chariot, we'll give you the horses, etc. And on the other side, the Ulstermen, led by Conquivir, say, we will give you jewelry and cattle and everything else from the north and our friendship. So you're going to get a great allyship plus all this reward. So I don't like their offer as much. I would be skeptical as like, give us the thing and we'll be your best friend. Well, it's friend and it's jewelry and cattle. So, you know, they're also offering goods. So Magdatho is sitting here and he is completely flummoxed by what he should do. As, you know, I suppose a king would be, because he's got two really great offers on the table. If he rejects one side, then he could make them an enemy forever. If he rejects the other, then they're going to be an enemy forever. But he's got to pick, right? So what is the king to do? Well, I feel like the obvious solution would be to, I mean, either say, no, that's my dog, off, or to establish some kind of competition between the two sides so that you don't have to be the one who picks. You are on the right track. So he fasts for three days because he's so upset about what he is to do. And so we continue on with our lovely tradition of cold as the council of women. And his wife steps in because for some reason, I feel like we've 
in a lot of these Irish stories, we've encountered a lot of leaders who don't know how to act. And so women end up either manipulating them or leading them or advising them down the right path and then they don't listen. Man, government officials who don't know how to act? That's crazy talk. Good thing we're so beyond that. So, his wife steps in. And she, again, we've talked about the poetics of Irish verse. So here we have this wonderful Irish verse that she speaks and says, basically, you're upset, you need advice, but you're not talking to anyone. You turn to the wall, you're not doing your duty as a warrior. But I, being a clever wife, notice all these things. And there's this lovely little gnomic wisdom here that says, tell no secret to a woman. A woman's secret is not kept. Jewels are not given to slaves. Okay, that's wildly insulting. It it really is. Especially that last part. Really bad, right? Although I do also have a uh, Gesta Romanorum story with that same premise and or moral, so we'll have to do that soon. (laughs) Yes, so clearly there's not a very good rapport about women's wisdom. We see this in the Norse sagas with Cole as the Council of Women. We see this in the Irish sagas with Tell No Secret to a Woman. And apparently we see it in the Gesta Romanorum. Which also says Tell No Secret to a Woman because, as we all know, women are gossips. Women And they like shoes and other stereotypes. (laughs) Again, we have all these wonderful themes, but it turns out in this case that the lady is right. You know, listen to your wife. Your wife is always right. We, we still have these sayings today. I feel like that's honestly a better moral, or at least more true to reality. Much more true to reality. So she's saying this as a satire. She's like, oh, well, they say don't listen to ladies. Don't tell secrets to women, which is why you're not talking to me, your wife. So she's butting her head in here and taking control of the situation and saying, well, if you refuse Conquevere, there's going to be trouble for certain his host is not going to leave, and they're going to take all your cattle, and if Alil is disappointed, Ireland's going to be devastated, and his warriors are going to carry us off and destroy us. So, my king, my dearest husband, my advice is to give the dog to both sides and let them fight over it. So, the last line of this verse, which is very, very, very interesting, is that God sent Alvi and the dog's origin is unknown. So this is a supernatural dog, which explains why everybody wants the dog. Yeah. So everybody wants this supernatural dog who can protect all of Ireland, but it also connects back to who Cuchulain is as sort of a demigod whose father is Lug, who is one of the gods of the... I don't want to say the Tooth of Dedanon. I think that's incorrect. He's one of the Irish gods. Cuchulain's mm-hmm. father is one of the Irish gods. So we see this connection between this story, which is sort of a satire or a play on Cucullin and the dog's origin. So that's very, very interesting once we start getting into the toy. In any case, Macdefo was like, ah, oh, you're so right. You know, listen to your wife. And so he- Just, just remember the phrase, yes, dear, and everything yes, dear. will be fine. Exactly. He sends messengers to both sides, the Connachtman and the Ulsterman, and says, I've decided to give the hound to you. So bring a magnificent host to come get the dog and come and bring all the rewards that you were going to give for the dog, etc., etc. So his plan is to let the two sides fight over the dog 
and to claim both rewards. Alright, I'm seeing a problem with this. <laughs> I'm seeing a couple problems with this. Yes. Alright, so first, wasn't one of the concerns that if Aleel is disappointed, Ireland will be devastated. Mm-hmm. But he's still kind of starting a war by having them both bring armies and then say, fight? Pretty much. So, yeah, this is how it starts. And so the people from Connacht and the people from Ulster both show up on the same day at the door to this magic seven-doored house, or I guess it, several of the doors of the seven-doored house, and he comes out and greets them, saying, Oh, wow, well, we weren't expecting you guys, but, you know, come in, come in. Let's have a feast. So now he's just outright lying about what he's doing. Did none of them say, like, wait, you invited us? It's not mentioned in the tale. Basically, he's got two rivals sitting across from each other at a bunch of mead benches, and he's like, hey, hey, let's have a feast, and you guys can fight over who gets my dog. This is a win-win situation for him, apparently, he thinks. This is the second problem I have, is that I feel like he and his household, and possibly the dog, are at risk if he starts a fight between two people in his, his hostel. Yeah, you would think, but, you know... These are how these stories go. And so you might be wondering at this point, the tale is called Macdetho's Pig. Not oh, yeah. dog, but pig. I had forgotten that, and now I really am wondering. Right. So you're like, where's the pig? Now the pig comes into play. The pig is apparently been fed by 60 milk cows for seven years. And I don't know whether they're drinking the milk of the cows or whether this pig is eating the cows. Because, fun fact, hogs will eat anything. They will eat. There's been so many instances of, like, a farmer having a heart attack in the pig pen and the hogs just eating the farmer. Yeah, there was also a serial killer up in Canada whose body count is unknown because he just threw the bodies into the pig pen. I remember hearing about that. That's terrifying. Basically, eat bacon. Don't feel bad. That's my official stance. I'm all here for bacon. Pigs may be smart, but they would also eat you back. Yes. So, whether this pig has been drinking the milk or actually eating these 60 milk cows, we don't know. But anyway, basically, it's a fat, fat pig. And the king brings in this giant pig, he slaughters some other pigs, some other oxen, and they're trying to figure out how to divide this massive pig. Lengthwise. <laughs> According to Irish custom, there is the hero's portion. So the best part of the pig has to go to the biggest hero that is there. What is the best part of the pig? I don't know. I'm not a butcher, and the tail doesn't describe it, but I'd figure, like, a back haunch. I thought maybe this was just common knowledge, and I don't know because I don't eat meat. No, unfortunately. Like, I, whatever the filet mignon of a pig is, I, I would say probably a haunch. Clearly, I don't actually know. I am not a butcher. I've not butchered a pig before. I mean, I've helped butcher a couple moves. I've never done a pig, so I wouldn't I know. I was gonna say, I was actually surprised that you hadn't done any butchering. Well, not not on a pig. <laughs> Other things, yes, but not a pig. Yeah, you know, moose, bears, Yeah, people. you know, <laughs> you know, you live in Alaska long enough, you, you end up butchering something. But in any case, they're trying to figure out who gets the hero's portion, who gets to carve this pig. And... Concavir and Aleel are basically standing across from each other, 
Like, well, we have to do it. No, we're gonna do it. And so they, they decide to settle this by saying, whoever of the best warrior in our ranks are gets to carve the pig. And so the next couple paragraphs are essentially bayouts. They're essentially boasts of different warriors. See, I feel like this is what they should have done for the dog. Just go like, all right, you two sort it out between yourselves. Who's the best? Here's a contest. The winner gets the dog. The winner gets the dog. Mind you, this is before they determine who gets the dog. This is just breakfast. This makes me think that the reason this pig incident is in here is to show like, hey, here's a less violent way to determine this kind of thing. You can just sort it out in some unrelated contest instead of just having two armies show up and go, I don't know, you guys fight it out. I don't know. I see, I think this is another example of a king who has no idea what he's doing. There's so many kings who have no idea what they're doing and they end up dead because of it. I don't know as much about Irish folklore as you do, but don't they end up having a lot of like council meetings and stuff whenever something complicated comes up? Or maybe I'm thinking of Welsh. That's probably Welsh. I suppose it depends on what period of Irish history you're talking about, because I'm primarily most familiar with the folklore as opposed to the actual history of it. My familiarity with Irish history history comes more from basically after it had already been taken over by the English. Oh, no, I'm definitely thinking of the Welsh. I was That's, that's the Mabinogian. Oh, okay. Yeah, the Mabinogian. I love the Mabinogian. We ought to do the Mabinogian sometime. We should. I've got a copy here somewhere. Oh, yes. Oh, good. Dragon lovers, you will love the Mabinogian. <laughs> Throwing that out there. Clearly, I just like dragons, so I just get excited. We covered this last time. <laughs> Who doesn't? Okay. So, back to the pig. At last, finally, they think they figured out who is the strongest here. And this is, I think it's pronounced Ket, son of Magu. So, C-E-T is his name. Ket or Set. I'm going to go with Ket because I, all the C's that I've encountered in Irish, like Connacht, are all hard. So I'm going to go ahead and say Ket. I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Jim. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> Listeners, if you know, please feel free to correct me. Uh, so basically, he stands up on the table, takes the knife, and stands over the pig or sits down over it and is about to carve into it. And he says, find anyone else in all of Ireland to match me. Otherwise, I'm going to cut the pig. Has the pig already been slaughtered or is he doing this to a live pig? No, it's already been slaughtered. It's already been roasted. They're at the dinner table. So they're at the meat benches. You got your seven pots of, you know, meat over the hearts. And they're additionally carving up this pig. And so Conquivir says, well, this ain't right. So we're not going to just let Set, or Ket, I guess Ket, carve up this pig. Steven. Yeah, Steven. <laughs> I mean, carve you can't prove that's wrong. That's, <laughs> I, think, I think it is probably <laughs> provable, but <sighs> he says, well, I'm not going to stand for this because you guys are our enemies. And you Ulstermen have a custom that you guys take arms against anyone in Connacht. So come to the border and let's fight. I'm sorry, are they having an actual war over the pig now? They might be. Oh, I'm worried the pig's going to go off while they're doing this. <laughs> right? It takes forever. So this is what Conquivir says. And then another warrior stands up and says, no, no, this isn't okay. 
I'm a better warrior than Set. I will, or Ket, I'll just say Ket. I will carve the pig. And, and Set says, oh, you, I remember you. Your grandfather cast a spear at me and I threw it back and it cut off your hand. So why are you here? What do you want? Also, you lost a swimming contest against Brecca. Yeah, you know. So, again, we're starting to get into some bayouts here. And for those of you who don't recognize what Mac is referencing, Mac, do you want to explain? Yeah, sure. In Beowulf, when Beowulf first shows up in King Hrothgar's court, Unferth basically does a... And I'm never sure how to how to pronounce it. Um, so instead of trying to use the technical term, I, he does a rap battle. And mm-hmm. he talks about... A flating, right? That's the one. Mm-hmm. And he talks about Beowulf losing a swimming contest against Brekka, and then Beowulf explains why he lost the swimming contest, and it's a whole thing that honestly sounds completely insane, because if Beowulf is to be believed, they were both swimming in full armor with swords, which sounds like a weird choice. I mean, if you're gonna prove your manhood, you gotta do it in full armor. Yeah, and if you've read uh, John Gardner's Grendel, this exchange is one of the kind of major plot points because Grendel is listening in and his conclusion is, this guy is legitimately psychotic. <laughs> like, he has no connection to reality. What is he talking about swimming in armor and fighting sea monsters? That's so valid. That's an incredibly valid interpretation. So this guy sits down and another Ulsterman stands up and says, well, I'm Jogen, son of Durrecht, and I'll carve the pig. And Ket says, oh, I've seen you. I have seen you at the entrance of your own house when I was stealing your cattle. Everyone in your land, which I'm assuming his like yard or his farm, screamed and that brought you out. And so you threw a spear at me and it hit my shield. And so I grabbed the spear and I chucked it back at you and it went through your head and put out your eye. I feel like this guy has one move and it's like playing dodgeball with spears. Right. So he's like, ha, that's why you've got one eye. Sit your butt down. So this poor guy sits down and Ket says, all right, on with the contest. You got anybody else to throw at me here? And Murinar, son of Garagend, some really fun names in here, stands up. And before he really can even say anything, Ket says, oh, it's been six days since I took three of your warriors' heads and the head of your firstborn son. So quite clearly, Ket is- Was that just on the way here? Apparently, it was six days ago. So, you know, Ket's just going through his resume. Like, I I put out this guy's eye. I cut off this guy's hand. Like, I killed this guy. took his head. And so, finally, another guy, this is Mend, son of Salchad, stands up. Oh, what now? Says Set. Sons of herdsmen with nicknames are challenging me. I am the priest who baptized your father with that name, for I struck his heel with my sword so that he took but one foot away. What could bring the son of a one-footed man to challenge me? So now he's invoking the name of the church. And mind you, he's not an actual priest. He's just saying, basically, I baptized you with that name. I gave you that name because you're the son of a one-footed guy. Oh, yeah, that's a good metaphor. I like yeah. it. So he's, again, he's throwing shade here. And so, let's see, another man stands up, and the text 
is very particular about saying that he's very, very ugly. So a very, very ugly Ulsterman stands up, and this is Kelthkar, and Set just looks at him, or Ket looks at him and says, huh, unless you want me to crush you immediately, then sit down. I arrived at the entrance of your house, everyone was screaming, and you came to the door, and again, we have the spear-throwing move, you cast your spear at me, but I cast another one at you so that it pierced your thighs and into your testicles. Since then, you have fathered no kids. Why are you daring to challenge me? You know, most uh, medieval texts just use thigh as a euphemism. Mm -hmm. So I like that he's, it starts sounding like he's going to do that. Then he's like, and also your testicles. And also your balls. So now Ket is basically just saying, yeah, you don't even have any balls, literally, to challenge me with. So, (laughs) on with the contest. Finally, we've got another guy who stands up, and this is Crusade Men Mache, son of Conquivir. So this is Conquivir's son. Everyone's like, oh yeah, this guy can do it. He looks like a king. He looks like his father. Set or Ket just looks at him and says, you came to Connacht for your first feast of arms, and we met at the border of Connacht. You left one third of your retinue and had a spear in your neck that I chucked at you. How are these people still alive? I don't know. So basically, not even the king's son can carve this pig. So this ultimate warrior of Connacht, I suppose, yeah, it would be the Connacht, is standing over this pig and he's basically the ultimate hero, which is interesting because Cucullin should be here. Cucullin should be this hero. But since this is not the story of Cucullin, it's the story of, you know, Makdathos pig, who is now in center stage, we don't have Cucullin doing this, we have Ket doing this. So, finally... I'm just amazed that they're putting this much effort into a pig. This is, like, a really intensely, like, violent and somewhat provocative rap battle over who gets the bacon. Basically. So, finally, one more guy stands up, and this is Connell, and says, I will challenge you, Cat. And he says, alright, fine. I'll meet you in single combat. And so, now they're actually going to fight over this pig. (laughs) I know, I know. Is bacon really that good? Apparently, like, this pig, 60 milk cows went into this pig. And he says, I will swear by what my people swear by. Since I first took a spear in my hand, there's not been a single day that I haven't killed a Connacht warrior. I've killed one of y'all every single day. And not a single night has gone by when I haven't had one of y'all's heads under mine as a pillow. So... Man, the Celts really love their decapitated heads. They love their decapitated heads. And it's just, it's a beautiful image. And it gets even better because Ket's not done. So Connell's made this declaration. And Ket says, all right, well, if Von Lewin were here, he'd give you a different kind of contest. But it's, you know, it's too bad he's not here. So he's Did you say of... Von Lewin? No, on Luan. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this sounds very German all of a sudden. <laughs> this German guy just comes rushing in <laughs> with a sig. <laughs> no, on Luan. 
He's, he's uh, my Saxon mercenary. Yeah, yeah. But no, uh, he says, well, too bad this other guy's not here. And Connell says, oh, but he is. And he takes... And the, the translation's very interesting because he says, he takes Ang Luan's head from his wallet, which I'm assuming is like a big man purse. He's got like yes. something at his, at his belt. It's not a modern wallet whatsoever. But he takes this guy's head and throws it at Ket so that blood spatters all over him. Again with the heads. Again with the heads. This is something I'm always on the lookout for when we do Irish stuff, because I I know the Continental Celts had this whole thing for basically, yeah, basically shrunken heads, but European style. Yeah, it's really interesting that there's a, a head in this story, because there are decapitated heads in the Toyn, and there's even one that speaks which is very interesting. So you have this decapitated head, but it's not done prophesying. So when we read the Toyn, we'll have to talk about that. But heads, decapitated heads, and the symbolic understanding of what a head is and what a decapitated head is, is very, very interesting in Irish lore. Needless to say, at this point, Ket has been put down, he's now got blood all over him, and he's been shamed because a head's been thrown at him. I also always love when they talk about a big bag as a wallet. As a wallet. They do that in some translations of grim fairy tales, too. Like, there's this one, I wanted to say it's called, like, The Brave Little Tailor or something, where the title character puts a live bird in his wallet. And just trying to picture that with a modern wallet oh, is Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. You know, it's like your inventory in Skyrim. <laughs> You know, just hold on while I just pull out this cheese wheel really quick. Oh, so you've read the story then? <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> oh, no. He also has cheese in his wallet. Does he? He's also got cheese in his wallet? Oh, no. No, I just got lucky because, like, in Skyrim, you can eat to regain health. And so I just get as many cheese wheels as I possibly can. And I just shove, like, 30 cheese wheels in my inventory. Oh, no. I'm like halfway through a fight. I'm like, hold on, hold on. Just let me shove this cheese wheel in my mouth. Regain some health here. Oh, Again, man. I, I have no video game knowledge. So it's just, it's so funny to me this. because you have so much inventory space and your character isn't carrying anything. He's not carrying a backpack or anything like that. And so it's like, he's just pulling a giant cheese wheel from his wallet. It's like, it's like a handy haversack. You know, you just shove it in there, you're fine. But in any case... Connell now sits down and carves the pig. So he takes... Oh, this is interesting because it does say what he takes. He takes the end of the belly until he's made a division into the pig. So basically he's taking the underside of the pig, I suppose, and where all the good meat is. I have heard people use the phrase pork belly before, so I guess that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He takes all of this good meat and he gives it all to his own men in Ulster. So the Ulstermen get all this amazing portion of, you know, the belly fat, it melts in your mouth, but he leaves the feet for the Connacht. And... I mean, since we were talking about southern food earlier, I'm pretty sure there are a lot of people who would enjoy that. You know, my grandfather really enjoys pickled pig's feet, but he's German. So, you know, it is something, it is a delicacy to some people. It's also a thing down south. I, uh... 
I used to work the graveyard shift at a convenience store in Mississippi when I was uh, getting my teaching certification. And there were a couple occasions where someone was actually upset that we didn't carry pickled pig's feet because they just assumed that was a staple. Amazing. That's incredible. I love Southern food so much. It is good. So good. Never tried the pig's feet. I was going to say, I don't think I've, I've never had the pig's feet, though. We did sell pickled quail eggs, which I never got around to trying either, because they were like $10 a jar, and I just didn't oh, have wow. that kind of money to throw away on something. Yeah, on quail's eggs. I know you can get fresh quail's eggs very easily in Ireland, but I've never had pickled quail's eggs. I feel like that'd be very good in ramen. Now I want to try that. I got to see if we if there are pickled quail's eggs up here in the Midwest. Yeah. That'd be interesting. I mean, I'm sure there aren't, because the Midwest doesn't have... Anything? Anything, yeah. Besides corn. Corn and soybeans. Yeah. yeah. If you're from the Midwest, I'm sorry. Not because <laughs> I'm talking shit about where you're from, but I'm sorry you're from the Midwest. It's bad here. It's sad. It's, it's also so the sad. only place I've ever been where people actually buy mild salsa. What's with that, man? What is, like, what is with Midwesterners and the Irish not being able to take spicy food? I don't know. I am white as white can be, but my family's from the South. So we, like, if our rule in our house is that if you haven't put enough hot sauce in for it to change color, you got to add more. That's a good rule. It's a good rule. It's got to change color. Also from a Southern family. And when I was a kid, we grew habaneros in our backyard. Mmm, nice. But yeah, no, the Irish can't do heat either. It's very funny. Wild. I know. Amazing. Come on, white people. Spices. Yeah. Spices. My favorite joke about the English is that they conquered the entire world for spices and then decided they didn't like any of them. That's honestly pretty <laughs> accurate. Because <laughs> they still eat like, like you know, the Germans are about to bomb them. Like boiled potatoes and toast sandwiches and Vegemite. Like, no. <laughs> I gotta say, though, pasties are delicious. So they pasties, got that one right. Pasties and tea. I will now go for a cuppa. All the time. I constantly need tea. And there, that's something they stole that they made work. That's true. They did make the tea work. We'll give them that. So anyway, the Ulstermen now are stuck with the pig's feet. And they think this is an insult. And so immediately, and this is like that wonderful scene from Brave, when all the different Scottish tribes start fighting each other in the middle of the hall. That is exactly what happens now. They start just fighting each other and... It's so bad that streams of gore are flowing out of the seven entrances of this house. So everyone's drinking, everyone's fighting, and everyone's trying to get more of this pig. All right, so since you reminded us of the seven entrances of the house and the seven everythings of the house, I guess, why didn't they just put the pig in one of the pots and then whoever deserves the best bits would magically get them, right? I don't know. That's, it's, it's... I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. Like that that's that just that seems like a Chekhov's gun that's just not going off. Yeah. Like I don't know why the pots don't come back because it's stated in the beginning. So I think the point of it is just to say like this is a magic house and it's the king's house and so it has something to do with that or maybe it's from a different tradition that they're pulling on for this story, but I don't know. Yeah, Cuz it's it's wild to have that detail that's a clear solution to the problem that's about to come up, and then it does it just not get mentioned again at all? No, 
it's the pots are never brought back up again. But I will say, for the record, there are so many places in these stories where there's an obvious solution, but whoever the main character of the story is does not follow it just because they're just a stupid individual or a bad king or a bad queen. Like, you know, the lady with the runes, she had she had the instructions on her hand. Right. So a lot of the morals in these tales are basically, it is okay to pick the obvious answer. You do not have to make life harder for yourself. Yeah. Street smarts. <laughs> <laughs> Just, if there is an obvious answer, do that. Just do that. You do not need to have a fight over a giant pig. You do not need to roast the pig. Sometimes a stew is better than a roast. So, everyone's fighting over this stuff, and finally, Mac Defoe brings the dog out. So he's determined that during all of this hubbub is the best time to let this dog pick a side. This king, I... Mm. I'm telling you, Irish kings, man, they don't have a great record. <sighs> I, I can't even articulate the lack of common sense this king displays. Exactly. So he's not even letting anybody fight over the dog anymore. He's just going to turn the dog loose to pick a side. <laughs> Has he at least gotten the payment that he was offered? I think he has. Okay. Like, he's gotten the payment. He's he's just turning everything else loose. I think that's, like, the amount of face palms that you've just given me is astounding. <laughs> but it sums up this king pretty well. Yeah. So, Alvi, the dog, chooses the Ulsterman. And in doing this, it's like a foreshadowing that the Connacht men will die, and that they're not going to take over. And that makes sense, because all these Irish tales talk about, they're all written way on down the line, so you can easily shove whichever side that you need to to win. So this easily could have been flipped, depending on, you know, who would have won. But the dog picks the Ulsterman, and unfortunately, the dog decides to get into the fight himself. This dog is not acting like I know dogs to act. I feel like a regular dog, if you let him into this hall, would pick the pig and run away with it. That is entirely valid, but it's a supernatural dog, so the supernatural dog has to defend the side that it's picked. So, now that the fight has broken out and it's going outside, the dog bites the chariot pole of Alil and Maeve's chariot, and he's trying to take them down, because this is the opposite king and queen of the side that he's picked. And the charioteer takes a spear and hits the dog so that don't spear dogs i object <laughs> that's entirely valid as well so this dog now has been impaled on a spike and the dog is dead and so of course because it's irish the place is named after the dog because of din Shanakus and place <laughs> names and place wisdom but the battle still rages on so they're going on this way and that way and this way and the charioteer has just realized what he's done and being a coward that he is he leaps off from the chariot and hides in the heather and this is very important because it's not one of the heroes that kills the dog it's the charioteer it's someone of a serving capacity and he doesn't stay in the fight he runs and hides a moment later <laughs> have you seen blackadder i've seen a little bit of it with is it Rowan Atkinson? Yeah. I'm yeah. just reminded of, I think it's the first episode where someone accidentally kills the king and then just goes and hides. 
basically that's exactly what's going on. And that seems like a fairly reasonable solution to me, but it's not a hero's action. Also, you should watch Blackadder. <laughs> yes, throwing that out there. I should. I really, I think it's on Netflix. If it's not, it should be. It should be. I think it has been. I think it's on my list. It's a great show. It's one of those classic English ones that's so funny. Amazing. Highly recommended to everyone. So there we go. We'll, we'll add that to our list of recommended recommended yeah. books, texts, and games, and shows, and things. Especially if you're a fan of Shakespeare. There's a lot of references to Shakespeare, especially in the first season or two. We love the bard. <laughs> I do love that bard. Okay, so the charioteer runs and hides into the heather. And when Conquivere rides by, he jumps into the chariot, grabs Conquivere, and says, Beware! Basically, basically, I will kill you. So he's got a knife to Conqueror's throat or whatever. Is this still the charioteer? Yes, this is still the charioteer. I mean, respect. Right? And so he says, beware. And all Conqueror says is, whatever you want, whatever you want. So he, like, the king immediately surrenders. Yeah, this is the king of the, the one who is the rival to Maeve and Aleel, yes? Yes, the Ulsterman. Okay. Yeah, so... He's not really impressing me with his uh, leadership skills. Conquivere? No. Very much not. And given that, you know, what does happen to Alil and Maeve? Like, there's, they, nothing really happens to them. It's not stated. They just sort of, I guess once their charioteer dives into the heather, they're just sort of looking at each other going, now what? See, I feel like a proper warrior king would do like the Che Guevara thing and say like, hey, do what you want. You're only killing a man. Yeah. That would be so much cooler. But no, Conquivere apparently just says, do whatever you want, do whatever you want. And what does this charioteer want? This is why scholars think this is a satire, because all of this is ridiculous in the first place. Yes. The charioteer says, take me to your castle, and every evening, send me the women of the Ulstermen and their daughters to sing the chorus of this folk song. What? And it's Fear Loga is My Darling, is the folk song. You have a king at knife point, and the ransom you want is send me singers? Send me the pretty women to sing. Yeah. What? And the Ulstermen grant him that for Conquivere's sake. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, they're getting off easy. The story ends with this guy riding off from Conquivere's castle a year later taking two horses and golden bridles. The end. What is this story <laughs> that you have brought us? I'm telling you, man, Irish tales are the most bizarre thing you will ever read. So this random charioteer happens to kill this supernatural dog, takes down both sides and his only desire is to have women not even to sleep with, which... No, to you sing might, to him. Yeah, you might expect, you know, it's like, oh no, I want the prettiest whores in your kingdom to sleep with me. You might expect that from, from a story of this time period. But no, no, he just says, I want them to sing to me. I want them to sing to me a folk song. Maybe that's his fetish. I, you know, maybe. Whatever floats your boat, I guess. But that is all he wants. And so we go from having this supernatural origin story about Kukulin and the major characters from the Toyn and this magic dog and we devolve into a fight over the hero's portion of a pig and a charioteer 
happening to get away. Yeah. What? So that is that is what this story is, the tale of Macdetho's pig. And I think it'll be very interesting to compare it to the toy later on, particularly because you have all of the elements of the toyne in sort of this heroic story, but they're all either turned on their head or made fun of in some way. So I would love your general input on this tale, given how very strange it is. I mean, most of it's what? But I do like the idea that just this completely random person who's not part of the warrior class at all ends up overturning the whole whatever this is just by accident. It's always interesting when one of these like heroic warrior stories kind of shifts into realism and goes like, actually, war is kind of chaotic and we don't know what happens. And sometimes just it goes wildly wrong. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. It's amazing to see the sort of humanness about that, because in war, like, yeah, it might be your charioteer who saves the day or who, you know, runs off into the wood and, and finds that sort of glory while the king is left, you know, at knife point or the other king is left dying. Like, who knows? Who knows what happens to them? And it's also really interesting that they end up fighting over a pig because in the toyne, the entire plot of the toyne, the reason it's called the Cattle Raid of Cooley is because Maeve really, 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 really wants the Ulsterman's cow. Not cattle, plural. Cow. Cow. There was one particular cow that she really, really wants. And Kukulin is the guy who is trying to prevent that attack. So Alil takes his forces to take this cow. And Kukulin is the one who stops them or attempts to stop them. So it's interesting that all of this fighting happens over this pig when sort of the analog is all this fighting is happening over this cow. And Kukulin is taking sort of the metaphorical figure of a watchdog. Mm -hmm. But we really, we actually have a watchdog in this case. That is wild. So there's there's a lot of analogs and both, spoiler alert, Kukulin dies and... Alvi here, the dog, also dies. So that's why a lot of this is said to be a satire for the toyne, because you do have these elements going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, but still on the face of it, it's such a ridiculous story that you're sort of, you're sort of left sitting there like, huh, okay, now what? So yeah, that is the tale of Macdetho's pig. I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> I mean, there's there's not too much beyond that, especially once you get into the comparisons with the toyne. It's just sort of an interesting idea. You have these ideas of the head trophy, the impact of the head. You have the hero's feast. You have sort of a flaking, sort of a bayout, the boasting between warriors. Someone needs to prove themselves the best warrior. And I think throughout the story, you see a lack of good kingship which seems obvious with Mechtetho, but you also see a lack of a proper hero because Kukulin is not there and the dog is not there. And when the dog does show up, his purpose is very, very short. It's yeah. basically to show up to pick a side and die. Even though the Connachtmen win and the Ulstermen are routed and the dog sides with them, it's still done by the charioteer. And all he wants is this little folktale ditty. Which again, your your double face palm is very appropriate. I want to know what 
his motivation is there. Like, ah, there's the king. I'll hold him at knife point, And I'll demand women come sing folk songs to me. What? I don't know. I, I have no idea. Like, you could literally get a king's ransom. That's why we have that phrase. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's nothing there, which is, like, again, which is why scholars believe this is so satirical, is that it trivializes everything that's in the tale. And so any possible weight that this story could have had is undercut by the charioteer's action and the decision he makes about what he does with the king. Yeah, yeah, it really does kind of underline how trivial this whole business is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Especially because there's no need to have a fight over this pig in the first place, like you say. Yeah. But social custom declares it, and so if social custom declares it, then we have to go through with it. I feel like, if anything, this is a satire of, like, the ridiculousness of the warrior aristocrat class. Yeah, yeah. And their rituals. Their rituals. I'd say so. I'd say so, because as you said earlier, we do see this upheld with Beowulf, because Mm -hmm. Unferth declares something, and Beowulf reprimands him and sets the story right. And so we see that with Ket initially, where he's challenged and puts everyone else to shame, but then that's flipped when Connell shows up and says, no, 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 here's the head of you know, a guy you were throwing a call back to. Yeah, yeah. Von Lewin, the, uh, the Panzer <laughs> operator. <laughs> Panzer operator, yeah. <laughs> Von Lewin it is. Our little German cameo. But there we go. Short, sweet, very, very strange. Very strange. So hopefully next time we'll find something that's a little bit more cohesive is my goal. But I really wanted to share this one because it generally, it's just so bizarre and satiric in its own sort of weird way. And I think it, how about this? What, how would you compare it to their tournament of Tottenham? Oh, they're both satirical. They both play with what is essentially a tournament. Right. I feel like if anything, this is a kind of a more biting satire because in the tournament of Tottenham, they're still kind of allowing that these rituals of the ruling classes like tournaments are a valid way to make a decision. And at least they're fighting over a wedding to, you know, the best woman in town instead of who gets the bacon. Yeah. But remember, I think one of the, one of the things you pointed out was that her dowry was the cattle and yeah. the chicken. So were they fighting over the woman or were they fighting over the food? That is a good question. In both of these stories, food and cattle make a really, really big part of what people are fighting over. But of course, in Tottenham, they're peasants. So to them, cattle and chicken are a fortune. That's right. so much stuff. But these guys are the ruling class. They mm-hmm. have their own pigs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They can go home and cook up some bacon. It's fine. Yeah. They don't need this one, except as a status symbol. Exactly. And so they end up fighting over this this idea of honor is essentially what this is about. And I think what we see, especially in the ending, is that none of this honor actually matters because no one gains that honor. The charioteer doesn't even gain the honor. No. So there's, there's no. no value in it, essentially. Maybe that's why they had him demand the uh, the singers, just to make it clear that he's not gaining fame from this. He's Mm -hmm. not getting, he's not like rising in social status. He's not getting anything other than a lullaby. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, uh, that's amazing. I I think that's what, what it's getting at, is we're picking fun at sort of this idea of the economy of honor. And yeah. I think I've mentioned that before. There's a fantastic article on it. I'll have to link to it on the site. But the, the this idea of the economy of honor and how one can actually trade one's honor and exchange honor as though it were a good is very, very interesting. And I think that's demonstrated here by the fact that the charioteer doesn't actually gain any honor. There's no, there's nothing mm-hmm. gained. He's either not smart enough or he doesn't think about it or for him, it's enough to have a bunch of women sing to him. Yeah. And the entire conflict is over something that's pointless and unimportant, except mm-hmm. in the like honor rituals mm-hmm. that these people engage in. Yeah. Yeah. I think that about sums it up. You want to go to the segments then? All right. Sounds good. What say you? Do we have any dialogue that really stood out? Yes. <laughs> Easily the best line of this thing, I think, is when when the guy says, if only Von Lewin was here, and the other guy's like, ah, but he is, and pulls the head out of his wallet. That's amazing. But he is! That's so great. But yeah, no, you're, you're dead right on that one. That is definitely the best. The other one that I really like is just, beware, Conquevere. It's like, okay, like some charioteer just jumps up on your chariot and he's like, hey, beware. And he goes, whatever you want, whatever you want. Like, I just think this would be a really funny animated short. Yeah, like, it would. It would. It's I'd comical. But no, definitely. It's like, oh, too bad he's not here. Oh, but he is. That one is fantastic. All right. Bestiary. Well, Alvi. Yeah, supernatural dog. The magic dog is, yeah, so he's a supernatural dog, so he gets to come in. Although it's unclear what makes him supernatural. Like, she says they don't know where he came from, and that apparently he's a very good dog, but maybe he's just a stray. Maybe he's just, you know, he's such a good boy. Yeah. That it's supernatural. He's a supernaturally good boy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going with that. That would be a wild thing to put in a D&D game is a dog that's just a supernaturally good boy. He's just supernaturally a good boy. And you get like a, you get a free inspiration if you pet him or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we're throwing that in <laughs> Oh, no. Well, he's the only supernatural critter. Yeah. Speaking of, I believe our next segment is ways to use this in a D&D game. Yay! So we've already covered that one. Just, you know, bring Alvi into your campaign. Supernaturally good boy. We appreciate that. Let's see. Um... I think the most obvious one that I can think of is to have your players end up at some hall where two sides are very much against each other. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, there's just, there's so much room for actually having a bar fight over a giant pig. I feel like that's just irresistible. I also like the idea of making them engage in some kind of honor ritual like they're doing here and seeing if they can pick up on it and interact properly with the, the bayots or the flight. How do you say that word flighting? again? I think it's just flighting. Flighting. Yeah. F-L-Y-G-H-T-I-N-G. I think 
See, I'm always confused because in Old English, I usually see it written F-L-Y-T-I-N-G, and often all, the Y in Old English is pronounced E. So I'm like, is e. it flighting or fleeting? I don't know. I've but, always heard it pronounced flighting. But... All right. Let's just say flighting. It would be interesting to see if your characters could engage in that, or your players could engage in that, or if they just reject the idea and try to come to another solution, or if they decide to try and steal the pig. Ooh, steal the pig. Especially if it's a massive pig, because this fed, like, the entire side. I don't know what kind of players you have, but (laughs) I feel like most of them would try and steal the pig. That's entirely valid. I think it would be very interesting if instead of putting this in a king's court, you put it in like the underground thieves guild or something Mm -hmm. like that, where it's sort of an honor ritual that's not part of polite society, but it still is an honor ritual that's important to whatever guild or group or secret society that your your players have found their way into. Yeah, that would definitely uh, give a lot more depth and texture to that kind of underground guild is to have them have their own honor rituals Mm -hmm. makes them Mm -hmm. seem more real and not just like a gang yeah like oh well we need a thieves guild so here's some guys yeah no you actually have a culture behind it where you like part of it is this flighting process also it will uh make you come up with something other than ripping off terry pratchett for your thieves guild which i think is the default option (laughs) true true let's see anything else that we can use this i mean you can always have alvi be a combat dog too if you have a ranger or something Mm -hmm. so you can always homebrew something like that oh i think i think we can incorporate the pots especially if you don't actually put anything in them they just generate stuff Ooh, that would be interesting. And you can you can determine who gets what stuff by rolling a die. Yeah. And that way, it's not you as the DM determining it, but it is up to chance. Maybe not all of them are good or safe to eat. Yeah. Maybe that's what you deserve. Dun, dun, dun. Throw that into your backstory. <laughs> I love that. Okay. Come out with a D&D party. The guy with the head. The guy with the head. Definitely. Connell. I think Connell and Ket would be good to have at mm-hmm. a party. Both of them. If you could make them get along, sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's the trick. Who else? Definitely not Magdatho. No. Can we I th- can we make Alvi a player? Would that work? I think it would be worthwhile. Okay. We'll we'll add Alvi. And the charioteer. The charioteer. I think he'd make a good rogue. I think you're right. You got a bunch of warriors, you got a dog, and you have the charioteer. So he was a rogue. So you're a little bit low on your casting, but you do have a supernatural dog. Yeah. I don't think we had any magic in here other than the pots. Just the pots, yeah. I mean, there was that part where what's-his-face claimed to be a priest, but that was metaphorical. That was metaphorical. That was a good burn. Yeah, I liked that. Baptized you with that name. Ha ha. I like that. Yeah, it made me think of uh, stuff in the in the Icelandic sagas like a Thorstein Staffstruck. Yes. Where like you get a nickname for something that's is shameful that happened to you. And that and then being able to say I baptized you with that name is just amazing. That's just a really okay, we can use that in a D D campaign. Yes. We can definitely use that. 
especially if if your players do it or if you're playing as like if you as a dm are playing a mentor of one of the characters you can do that either in an honorable way or a dishonorable way if something Mm -hmm. bad happens to them that's a good way to do it for sure i also like uh giving players nicknames for stuff that happens to them not well the characters not the actual players that's a whole different thing (laughs) yeah but the characters the Tolkien tally I don't think Tolkien has anything to do with this one so we will skip him actually Ooh. what's his name Huon the dog in the Silmarillion oh my gosh um why am I blanking on his name he's my favorite he's one of my favorite characters hang on what is that dog's name it is Huon yeah is it yeah Huon Huon Oh, what a sweet dog. Who on the Hound of Valinor. Yes. And there is a really great image of him on uh, TolkienGateway.net. Yes. He seems to be drawn as an Irish wolfhound. He, I think he generally is, which fits. Which is also interesting to note that in the Harry Potter books, Sirius's animagus form is also an Irish wolfhound. Is it? Yeah. I didn't know it got that specific. I thought he was just a big dog. The books may not have specified, but the film in the films, he's an Irish wolfhound. Oh, I don't think I watched the films that far along. I'm pretty sure that series lost me, whichever one had the Jamaican talking head. And I was just like, you're... Oh, that's the third one. Yeah, I was just like, yep. no, done, done. That's valid. Yeah, that's valid. To be honest, the last two books just sort of, I was like, no, but I think they were great up until the fourth or fifth one. I don't know. It's okay. We can we can trash J.K. Rowling now because she's being <laughs> transphobic in public. So, <laughs> yeah, Ooh. I love the Harry Potter series, but her add-ons to that have not been very. Ooh. Death of the author. That's all I'm saying. Death of the author. Not literally. We are speaking about the metaphor, the the literary term, death of the author. I am not calling for J.K. Rowling's death. I mean, eat the rich, right? <laughs> She she did do very well with her films. But no, it's, it's interesting that Irish wolfhounds are magical creatures. And I think you're right. Tolkien's Huon is depicted as an Irish wolfhound. And Huon, for those who are unfamiliar with the Silmarillion... Well, do you want to take this one, Mac? Oh, crap. Um, I haven't read the Silmarillion in a really long time. Future Mac here. I've deleted a period where I fumble about for a while trying to remember enough details from the Silmarillion to successfully relate the story of Huon until Zoe graciously takes over. And that's a mess that, frankly, you're probably better off being rescued from. So instead, let's go straight to Zoe successfully telling the story. Oh good, you remember, you do it. <laughs> I do. I love the story of Baron and Luthien. And this is, for the record, this is Aragorn's like great, great grandfather and grandmother. Baron is a human, Luthien is an elf. So you already see the similarities between Aragorn and Arwen. And Baron immediately falls in love with her, but Luthien's dad, Thingol, won't let Luthien marry Baron. He says, yeah, you can marry her when there is a Silmaril in your hand. And the Silmarils are these basically magic crystals before the One Ring was made that Morgoth really, really, really wants. And Morgoth is like the bad guy who's more powerful than Sauron. Which is wild, by the way, that everyone wants these things. Because as far as I can tell, they don't do anything. They're just pretty. 
they have so, I feel like they have like magical life-giving qualities because it was the light of the two trees that was distilled into the into these gems. Could be. I feel like a lot of Tolkien is never really uh, explicit on what these magical things do. That's true. He's a very soft magic system. I enjoy it. But anyway, so Baron basically runs off to go and <laughs> basically fight Morgoth. He's basically going to fight Satan for a Silmaril and Luthien, her dad goes all Rapunzel on her and locks her in a treetop. She escapes, basically bedsheet method, like throwing the bedsheets over the edge and then climbing down. And she meets Huan, and Huan is her protector. So she basically rides Huan to go after Baron. And long story short, I really encourage everyone to read it. It's a fantastic, hilariously funny story. Baron keeps swooning and passing out, and Luthien basically helps him out like he he does a great a lot of great stuff but he keeps swooning and passing out because of his wounds oh i I thought you were gonna i thought you were gonna say it was like a courtly love thing like oh i swoon when i see my love and she's like well that's that's great but it's really inconvenient it's not a great time baron but no no he like he you know, falls faint with his wounds and stuff, and it's like, come on, Baron, really, you're doing this now? And essentially, in their in their attempt to escape from Morgoth's palace, Sauron, who I think is transformed into that wolf, it might be a different wolf, I don't rem- I don't recall, but anyway, the wolf bites off Baron's hand, the hand that's holding the Silmaril. So he's got a Silmaril in his hand, but his hand is not attached to his arm anymore. So they're escaping, and Huan dies protecting them in their escape to get out and the wolf basically kills Huan. They go back to Thingol and Baron, being the cheeky little human that he is, goes up to this great elven king and he's like, well, I've done it. I'm going to marry your daughter. And he's like, well, where's where's the Silmaril? And he's like, it's in my hand. And he holds up his stump because he's cheeky. I do really love Tolkien for the cheekiness of his human characters. They are fantastic. And essentially, in the end, Thingol goes and kills the wolf, and they rip the wolf open, and the Silmaril's in there, and he's like, okay, you can marry my daughter. Uh, but that's that's the long and short of it, but that's that's who Huan is, and that's how he fits into Tolkien's mythic universe. I feel like there's some resonance there. I, You know, I think you're right. Especially the Irish wolfhound is interesting to me, because that, that is how it's depicted. So there's, there's at least a, a cultural import to mm. Irish dogs and their importance in mythic folklore. And this dog doesn't speak. Alvi doesn't speak, but the dog does choose where it wants to go. That's true. Which is interesting. And it is a supernatural dog. And maybe he does speak, just not not on the page. Okay, I'll take it. Well, there we go. I mean, it does something impressive for everyone to want this dog. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Now let's sit at the kitchen table. Well, we do have those magical pots with... Mm-hmm. The magical pork and beef. There's also, like, new symbolic value to be attached to pork bellies, apparently. That's true. And the pig was massive. Mm-hmm. So we can add Macdetho's pig to the pantry. <laughs> yes, let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> to be brought out only when we want to have a row. Mm-hmm. Okay. Street smarts! Sometimes just let the other people have the bacon. Especially when you have a bigger fish to fry... Like a dog. Like, if you want the dog, just let the people have the bacon. Don't fry dogs. Well, no, don't fry dogs. But if you want the dog to guard Ireland, then don't get upset over the pig. Don't cry over 
pork belly. Don't cry over spilt pig. There we go. Don't cry over spilt pig. Street smarts. <laughs> that is lesson number one. Also, keep an eye on your charioteers. Yeah, that's a big one. And also, if you have a king at ransom, please, please, please think of your future. Ask for a king's ransom. That's why we have that phrase. <laughs> ask for the money. Don't ask for the women. Don't ask for some songs. Ask for something of value that you can carry with you. I mean, if you're going to ask for women, it should be like the king's daughter to wed or something. Yeah. Not just to come sing to you. Think of your future. If you're holding a king hostage, don't get riled up in the situation. Think of your future. Okay. Best moment. I really like the charioteer just ambushing the king like a common bandit. I think that's pretty great. That one is so much fun. Oh, man. Yeah, that entire section is fantastic. I think my favorite moment has got to be the head throwing. Yeah. Because... Ket's been up there for, like, probably 45 minutes just throwing shade at people, and it's somewhat satisfying to finally see him get taken down, especially by someone who just throws a head out of the bag at his side. I know he's been uh, beating everyone in this ongoing flighting, but I've got an ace up my sleeve. Yeah. And by ace up my sleeve, I mean head in my wallet. Yeah. <laughs> like, think about how much that would have stank. Yeah. Like, how long do you have to have a head in your wallet for? I mean, they preserved them. This is, again, me thinking of stuff from The Discovery of Middle-Earth. Oh. It's a book about the Celts and their culture and the parts that have been kind of forgotten. Ooh. And apparently a big part of it was they would actually have decapitated heads, the warriors, and they'd preserve them. That's amazing. Like I said, it's, it was basically shrunken heads, but European style. European style shrunken heads. Instead of, I think it's Pacific Islanders that got famous for it later, mm -hmm. but the Celts did it. Future Mac here. Past Mac is wrong. It was tribes within the Amazon rainforest. Interesting. Cross-cultural. It's a cross-cultural tradition. I mean, everyone loves a good shrunken head. I suppose so. You can just stick it on your mantelpiece, I guess. You can just look look at him every day and just be like, yeah, I killed that guy. <laughs> I think they literally did. I'd have to check again, but I'm pretty sure that was actually the context in which it That's was talked amazing. about. I wonder if they were like Christmas ornaments. I think they were pagan, but well, yeah, Christmas but trees I mean, are also pagan. Yeah. So. so, you know, just, you know, or like, I don't know, like, what if you drove up to someone's house on your chariot and they've just got heads hanging in the trees outside their house? That would be amazing. There we go. There's another D&D &D idea. I was just thinking that. <laughs> that is something to put in a D&D &D game. <laughs> yeah. Shrunken heads. But avoid any of the colonialist implications. Yeah. Because that got real bad. Like... Victorian noblemen commissioning shrunken heads bad. Ooh, really? Yeah, they were collector's items, but the people who, who did this didn't really, like, do it all that often. Like, they weren't bloodthirsty head collectors. It was just, like, a cultural thing that occasionally happened. But oh, wow. a lot of people in England wanted them, so they started paying the... I forget what the tribe it was. I think the Dyaks or something. Future Mac again. 
This is the source of my earlier confusion. The Dayaks are an ethnic group in Borneo, and while they did practice headhunting and were famous for it for a while, they did not practice head shrinking that is specific to Amazonian peoples. And, in fact, the Celts also didn't shrink the heads, they just preserved them. The actual shrinking process, as practiced in the Amazon, is was much more involved and, as far as I know, was a unique invention among that particular cultural group. Like, hey, can you give us 50 shrunken heads? Oh my god. We're going to sell them over here. And they'd be like, well, <gasps> if you're going to pay us that much. Oh, wow. On the other hand, that could be really cool for a villain. Yes. So, I mean, if you're going to use shrunken heads, use them responsibly. Everything in the British Empire would be pretty cool for a villain. That's, yeah, that's fair. Use shrunken heads responsibly. Yes. Okay. <laughs> the court. Go ahead. And pick your pick your hero for the court. I have a lot of possibilities I'm kicking around. Because, like, there is, of course, the guy who threw the head. Mm-hmm. And that's amazing. Connell, yeah. Connell. There's Maeve. Even though her role here is pretty minimal, I know that she's a big deal. And she'd be cool to have around. Mm-hmm. But I also have... I feel like there's only one choice that I, I just have to make. Okay. I want the dog. You want the dog. That's, that's, see, here's the question. Is he supernatural enough that he, does he count? I mean, he died. Therefore, he's mortal. That's true. You're right. Okay. You get Albie. Yes. (laughs) I was going to ask earlier, like, as soon as you mentioned a supernatural dog, I'm like, does he count as mortal? Does he count as mortal? I know. We need to know for the court. (laughs) All right. Albie, you get Albie. Oh, man, you've got a good dog. All right. Well, I guess I'll go with the second best option, which is to say a man. That sounded horrible. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you're not wrong. (laughs) Oh, no. Okay, yes. Since there's no other fantastic dogs in this in this saga. I don't want to do Maeve for this one because she doesn't really do anything as as in compared to the Toyn. Mm -hmm. So we should hold off on her. But I think I will do... Connell, because just the sheer amount of badassery that comes with throwing a head at your enemy. Yeah. It's just so cool. Leaves an impression. So I'll go with Connell. I think that's the first non-human as a part of the court. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to be the last, because I've got a a text I'm still kind of preparing side notes for that's going to... Basically, the only options are non-humans. Oh, man, why didn't I pick the Nagas? I could have picked the Nagas last week. I think they're immortal. Oh, yeah, you're right. So, I mean, I think they can be killed, but I also think they kind of live forever. Like, they've got That's that true. whole water dragon palace thing going on. That's true. And the guy last week didn't get killed. That's true. He's still on that mountain somewhere. Yeah. True enough. Okay, so... Final rating. This is tough because a lot of the things that seem like problems with the text might actually be clever satirical things. Yeah, that's why this one is so hard. It's like Chaucer, where I don't know about how Chaucer has been handled in your courses, but when I took a Chaucer course in undergrad, one of the things that the professor was always kind of unsure of, well, I say unsure, I'm sure he was quite certain in his opinions, but he talked about 
some uncertainty in the scholarship mm. about whether or not stuff in Chaucer was satire or just dumb. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's fair. To be fair, I have not gone through a lot of Chaucer in scholarship myself, which is a big, it's a big hole in my education that I really want to fix. I assume you've at least read the Canterbury Tales. Not in full. I know. I know. It's so bad. It's on my list. You gotta. I know. They're so fun. I do love the Canterbury Tales, but I have not yet read them in full. Well, once once you get back to your graduate program, you should try and find a Chaucer class to take. They're worth it. Definitely. You know, if you ever manage to, to get, get out back. of this weird limbo. I don't know, man. What sort of hellscape is 2020 anyway? <laughs> yeah. Where are we living in? For the listeners, we are recording this in summer 2020, so some of the stuff that's going on that we don't talk about on the episode is I've been going to demonstrations and stuff in my little mid-sized college town, and Zoe is dealing with the troubles of being an international student in the plague year. In the plague year. Hopefully it's just the one plague year. Yes. We'll find out. Yeah, I'm basically couch surfing at this point, so I'm trying to write my dissertation. <laughs> Which, if you asked me, like, six months ago, what this year would look like, it would not be this. But, you know, here we are. I also did not expect to, you know, be doing this podcast, so I'm super thrilled. This is a great thing. This is the beacon of 2020 that is glowing out. I mean, side effect of everything being closed, we suddenly have a lot of extra time. True enough. Also, I bought this uh, new computer with my Plague Guild. Yay! Good victories there, all the way By around. which I mean the $1,200 stimulus check or whatever the official word for it is, but... I like yours better. <laughs> if we're going to have a play, we might as well use plague terminology. Okay, rating. Yes, because of the general uncertainty, but also hilarity, I'm going to... Mm, I'm going to go with a seven. I feel like a that seven? acknowledges that it's got clever bits, mm -hmm. but also leaves room for... What? For what? That's fair. I think I'm going to rate this one lower than you, actually. Probably because of the various Irish sagas that I've read and enjoyed. This one has so little context with it and so little political context, at least that I'm aware of. I'm sort of sitting here like, well, why does that fit? And ever since you pointed out, like, the hearth thing and the pots, it's like, oh, those don't come back. What? <laughs> what's the point of... I'm, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it... I'm going to give it a six. I'm giving it a six. Okay. I still like it, but now I'm sitting here like, yeah, they could have, like, where'd the pots come from and where'd they go? What's going on? All right. Well, we have only one more thing to do. Welcome to the Leech's Corner. I've got a couple short ones I want to share. So, about a couple, I do literally mean two. Okay. So, from chapter six of the Leech book, still book one, we're going to talk about teeth again, but fewer worms than last time. <laughs> yeah, good. For the upper toothache, take leaves of witherwind, ring them on the nose. For the nether toothache, and this is the one where if you have, like, something about your teeth, you should skip ahead about... 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. Slit with the tenaculum until they bleed. Ooh. Uh, a tenaculum is a surgical instrument that is still in use. It's basically a hook with a handle. A hook with it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Old English is uh, fathorn. 
Interesting. It looks like a thorn, you know, yeah. Yeah, it looks like a thorn. Amazing. So, apparently, if your upper teeth hurt, you need herbs, but if your lower teeth hurt, you have too much blood. Yeah. So, okay, but it says nether. Nether teeth. I'm assuming that means the jaw? What about wisdom teeth? Oh. Like, if your wisdom teeth are coming in, if you if you cut it, then they'll come in faster? Oh, man. I have n- I didn't even think of that. Because I'm thinking, like, ne- like, nether is far back in the dark, and that's farther along in your jaw. That's what I thought of. I just assumed it was uh, upper and lower. Let me grab the actual text. Update. The original language is not helpful because the word that cocaine has translated as nether is nitherin. Nitherin. So it's pretty direct. Hang on. Are there any alternative translations? Hmm, well, the one I'm coming up with is a verb. Ah, I got it. Uh, the head word in, in Bosworth Toller, at least, is N-E-O Thorn, E-R-A. And it just says lower. So, Interesting. You know, it's, it's just the, it's obviously cognate with nether. So cocaine just went yeah, straight across. Yeah, yeah. So what about, because it, it doesn't specify age. So I wonder if this has to do with, like, your, your baby teeth falling out and your upper teeth coming in. Oh, it could be. Because that could still be your wisdom teeth if, like, for instance, if you've lost all your teeth, you know, as or an old man. Or if it's man. about pains associated with losing your baby teeth and getting your adult teeth, maybe it's just a sneaky way to get your kid to stop complaining about their teeth hurting. Once again, if you have a thing about your teeth, you might want to skip ahead about 15 seconds. Your teeth hurt? Then let's go to the uh-huh. leech and have him stick a hook in your mouth. That'll fix you right up. We'll just do this every time you have problems. Let me know. (laughs) Oh, medieval parenting. We love it. That's interesting. It's so fascinating to me that these texts are so vague Mm -hmm. that we don't really know. I wonder if they were vague enough that they didn't know either. I have no idea. I assume that the person who wrote it down knew what they meant. Yeah, but what if you got like a copy of it, you know? Would they know? I don't know. (laughs) What is medieval (laughs) medicine anyway? None of us know. The other short one that I want to share is from chapter 9. And this is for stopping the bleeding of a wound. Okay. To stop blood again, poke into the ear a whole ear of barley so he be unaware of it. Uh, I don't... I don't... (laughs) Okay. All right. It follows this up with... Some write this, and it gives an inscription that you may write on whatever, presumably the barley or maybe on a piece of paper that you just... And it's supposed to be an incantation, I think, but it's mostly nonsense. So you've got a cross, and then the following words, Agrin, Thon, Struth, Fola Angrin, Tart, Struth, On, Tria, In, Piat, Hathu, Morfana, On, Hal, Cross, Ara, Karm, Leu, Groth, Weorum. Three vertical lines with a horizontal strike through. Fil, Krondi, the letter Win, just on its own. A large huh. X between two vertical lines. Mro, Kron, Arcrio, Ermio, Er, Leno. And for no discernible reason, uh, in those last two words, the R in Ar and the N in Leno is capitalized. Interesting. And then it follows up by saying that this is a blood stancher for horse or for man. 
for for a horse or mm-hmm. for a man. So you're you're sticking a piece of barley yeah, in somebody's that's, ear. That's I think my favorite part of that is like you have to put a whole ear of barley into somebody's ear, and then it says, so he be unaware of it. So you have to be sneaky about it, I guess. I don't know how you could not That's... notice. Or I guess so that, like, you don't feel it when you're... But, like, the, the ear canal does not... I mean, I understand for a mm-hmm. horse, but, like, but a, 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 yeah. a person? And all of the stuff in the leech book is primarily for humans. There is a separate book for animals. But this specific one is like... Oh, wow. But this will also work for horses. I have, I have nothing to add to this one. I just... There's nothing there. It's, it's, not, even, it's not even a cure in any regard. I mean, if it's the ear that's bleeding, you have stopped the blood. <laughs> I mean, I guess. Ugh. And do, have you tried translating this incantation or is it have does it most of it definitely not words how might be from heel Uh, some of it seems like it's fake latin yeah yeah i get that but it's almost entirely left untranslated in i think in the edition of the leech book because most of it is just nonsense words and some of it's just symbols weird and a couple of these it's not clear how you're even supposed to pronounce them because one of the words is spelled F F I L, so who knows what that is? Like fiffle, fill, fill. And another one is M R O, which is also hard to do. Mro. Neither of these are real words that you can translate. The double F might be something if you're Welsh, but I don't know. Oh, I don't know enough Welsh. What am I saying? I don't know any Welsh. Huh. Well, it's a, it's an incantation. Yep. If you know how to say it right, that's probably why if it doesn't work, you're probably just saying it wrong. I mean, also, it's not even supposed to be said. It's written down. Oh, yeah, that's valid. Then I guess it doesn't matter. And that's why some parts of it aren't even words. They're just symbols. They're just symbols. Try at your yes. own risk, listeners. We claim no responsibility for what happens. If you stop the blood, that's great. Uh, let us know. Also, it's unclear where you're supposed to write it. So you can experiment with that. Let us know. We take no responsibility. Whatsoever. Especially if you have some sort of barley-related injury. Yeah, no. Barley. (laughs) That's just weird. It's just weird that it's barley. Well, I mean, it's... I guess it's common common enough. Also, you know, it's it's grain. Grain has its own, like, symbolic properties. That's true, that's true. Well, our 21st century minds cannot comprehend the genius of the... Medieval medical yep. mysteries. Simply put. Yep. <laughs> well, on that note. Yes, I think that's all I've got. Well, back to the back to the grind, I suppose. I guess. Yeah. I gotta get out of my lease. You know, a solution to leasing woes that I've considered but ultimately rejected because I have a dog who lives with me is to just live in public buildings on campus. Right. Like at this point. See, the reading room is open 24-7 on, at Trinity, and so I'm like, you know, there's a kitchen. There's a yep. kitchen down there. Showers in the gyms. There are rats in that kitchen, <laughs> but there's a kitchen. <laughs> For a second, I thought you were thinking of the rats as a resource. Like, I can cook the rats. <laughs> ah! You know, I, I do have that, what is it, like, 1947 Joy yep. of Cooking book that says how to, how to skin a squirrel. <laughs> 
pretty sure people do actually do that. I swear, a couple summers ago, there was someone living in Hick here on, at Purdue. Oh, I'd, I'd believe it. Because, like, every time it. I was in there, there was this one, like, one of those, like, booths near the coffee area was basically set up as, it looked like a campsite. And I'm like, there's a student living there. there yeah. Which should not be the case. Like, we should be able to provide our students with, with better, but academia is failing miserably. I do appreciate the resourcefulness. I bet they saved a lot of money doing that. So much. So much. Well. Thank you for listening to The Miniculum. Please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcast to help support the project. For more geeky additions or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, the Maniculum Podcast to join in on discussions about all things medieval. And feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter at Maniculum and on Instagram at Maniculum Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And special thanks to Sandra Boyle, who created the music for our show. You can check out her project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Hold on, let me grab the actual. <laughs> I love the production value of our podcast. We're so good at this. Yeah, I kind of forgot I was still plugged into the <laughs> Oh, microphone. no, you're good, you're good. Hold on.